Welcome to the In Camera Review Podcast. Mike, Matt, and Logan, we are lawyers talking about movies. Each week, we pick a movie, an actor, and a year. Up for review this week, the movie Mank, the actor Shia LaBeouf. And for our year, 1942, the 14th Academy Awards, where How Green Was My Valley won Best Picture. The also-rans that year were Blossoms in the Dust, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Hold Back the Dawn, The Little Foxes, The Maltese Falcon, One Foot in Heaven, Suspicion, and notably Citizen Kane. This week I was able to get in Mank, Citizen Kane, RKO 281, The Battle Over Citizen Kane, a documentary, The Maltese Falcon, Honey Boy, Borg vs. McEnroe, and The Peanut Butter Falcon. Logan, what did you watch this week? I got some heavy lifting in this week, too. Mank, Citizen Kane, The Maltese Falcon. First time on that. Big time fan of Humphrey Bogart. I did Tenant, which we're going to have to talk about at some point. Did you do the prequel to that, Landlord? (laughs) I missed that one, Mike. I heard that it is not good at all. There's good and bad in the movie. As a concept, it's very intriguing what Nolan was trying to do. I don't think he executed as well as he normally does. But visually, there's some, you know, there's some neat effects and stuff like no that. It's, is it Nolan's worst movie? Is it worse than Insomnia? I would put it a peg above Insomnia. It's been a long time since I've seen Insomnia. So I really would like to revisit Insomnia because once you sent that text saying Insomnia is a bad movie, I, I've I had a lot of sleepless nights since then. I I, I don't it's remember hating. I, he really is. Don't <laughs> I don't remember hating that movie. If anything, I think your boy Robin Williams is who brought who brought it down. Agreed. Logan, what else did you get in this week? So I did a couple new Shia movies. I've seen a lot of his stuff, but I did Pieces of a Woman, which is the, the newest one. A lot um, of buzz. A lot of buzz. A lot uh, of he puts in He puts in a solid performance. I also did The Tax Collector, which was one of his movies with David Ayer, and it was not good. He He's not bad in it, but it's never him. I looked up the stats for it. it it cost $30 million to make and it grossed 1.5 million. So not, not a success. And then I also watched locked down with Chiwetel and Anne Hathaway. Oh, that's the new, uh, Hebo max movie, right? Right. Which was entertaining. Ben Kingsley makes an appearance, very similar character to his character in sexy beast. Doesn't cuss quite as much in this movie, but his what am I character- doing? This, this, this His character is very, very similar in the movie, and Chiwetel is—he's excellent in the movie. Matt, what'd you watch? I did the Citizen Kane Mank project, which boy, am I glad I did it! Now, first viewing on Citizen Kane for you, correct? Same correct. for me. Did that last Friday, sat down on Saturday and did Mank. And I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. For anybody that has the time to do that, I totally recommend it. Did a lot of cliff notes in revisiting the LaBeouf catalog. Very excited to talk about him. Watch The Croods Part 2. And oh. I will say Nick Cage has still got something left in the tank, no doubt. Another yeah, fun I think, movie. I think you bought a penis mightier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you enjoyed the Citizen Kane Mank project as much as I did. 
So much so that I believe what we will do as a programming note is we will modify our movie actor in a year format. And instead, we will go actor year movie. So when we come back, we will be talking about Shia LaBeouf instead of Mank. Had alcohol and weed and I grieved her and uh, then I joined the army. Because what else? And I came home, uh, spun out. I did so much fucking cocaine, can't read out my nose no more. Started shooting in my arm. Just didn't give a shit no more. Drinking every day straight, weeks. Fell into a blackout. Woke up a sex offender. Shia LaBeouf in a scene from 2019's Honey Boy, directed by Alma Harrell and written by Shia LaBeouf. His filmography includes the movies Holes in 2003, Disturbia, Transformers, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, Transformers Dark of the Moon, Lawless, Fury, Borg vs. McEnroe, Honey Boy, The Peanut Butter Falcon, The Tax Collector, and Pieces of a Woman. Did you forget Eagle Eye? I did forget Eagle Eye. I really like him in Eagle Eye. Um, So I picked him because he's in the news again and not for, you know, good publicity. ICR and nobody on this podcast condones any of the actions of Shia. He has been sued by an ex-girlfriend. FKA Twigs. She's in Honey Boy, right? Correct. Correct. She sued him for an abusive relationship, both physically and emotional abuse. And he admitted to at least some of the things that he's accused of doing, which are Sounds like he admitted to all of it. This is not the first time he's been in trouble off screen, right? He's gotten arrested a bunch of times for all sorts of different things. I don't know if you guys remember, but at some point he was like driving around Hollywood in like a mini version of a semi truck. Like he had this giant, massive jacked up truck that looked like a semi truck that he used hey to man i used to around. ride around one of those things in high school come on <laughs> right he's constantly in trouble off screen do you think that this lawsuit is the last nail in the coffin for shia is he done i think he's gonna get it settled from some of the stuff out of the posts i was reading like he's he's willing to go to mediation and get it settled and for the listeners what is mediation <laughs> it's a um, non-binding dispute resolution forum in which both sides go to an independent third party who helps them try to resolve their dispute. As opposed to a judge, right? Correct. It's all non-binding. So the mediator doesn't actually have authority to make a decision. They just try to get both sides to see the benefits of settlement. I'm glad you brought it up, the lawsuit, Mike, because I do want to talk a little bit about the lawsuit and the basis for it. And I don't want to minimize it at all. Right. But it's a tenuous claim. It is. I had problems in my relationship. If we let everybody sue each other because they have problems in a voluntary adult relationship, I I think we're, we're in trouble as a society. And this is, it's, it's it's not the same. If this was just two regular people suing each other, this would get laughed out of court. Right. Right. And if you guys remember, there was the buzz about like, you know, one of the dating apps where this guy went on a bunch of dates with women and he paid for the dinners and he he sued one of the women 
because he didn't he didn't get a second date or he didn't get sex or you know whatever and he wanted the cost of the dinner and everything back i mean if we let people do this i we're i think we're in trouble as a society now again i don't want to minimize correct the abuse or anything like that and you are allowed to bring a civil case for damages related to that kind of stuff but for intentional infliction of emotional distress yeah she I mean, did sue him for that intentional infliction of emotional distress that is every relationship that ends poorly right no doubt no right? doubt no okay doubt. so let's just get that out of the way but what i did see in, in outrageous the behavior yeah the so the, the defendant stood outside my window and held a boombox playing peter gabriel and <laughs> Right? Right? I mean, that's outrageous. One of the things I will say, Logan, to your point is that there is conduct that has been alleged that it should be taken seriously because there is some assault, some battery, and those are more traditional torts. Right. right? If If somebody commits domestic violence, that's not only a crime. You can also, there's also a civil remedy where you can get your medical bills paid for and also the, the, the pain and suffering that you go through depending on the severity of your injuries, right? He's clearly a troubled individual off screen. Which they acknowledge, right? Like the, his previous girlfriend say they feel some sympathy for him because they understand that a lot of this is because he has, you know, these the mental illness and these demons that he deals with. Look at that. It's after five. You guys up for a couple of beers? You too have a little bit more experience on the corporate side, so I can see your outrage in terms of letting these types of lawsuits continue, but... Here comes the plaintiff's attorney. What's this case worth? What are her medical bills? These what, are shitty what? cases. This is what you need to understand. These are shitty cases. So she's got <laughs> medical... Seriously, these are shitty cases. So really, this is this is essentially Mickey Haller taking a free case to get his name in the paper, which is who exactly. the plaintiff's attorney is. That's a great right? point, Matt. Exactly, you know, 100%. It, because there's no money in this case. There's none. I mean, for publicity, the, for the right? plaintiff's attorney. Yeah. Because your claim's going to be based off of medical bills. That's where your special damages are going to come from. I assume she has insurance. That insurance, I assume, paid. So there's going to be a reimbursement there. And then it's going to come down to loss of normal life, pain and suffering. How much is a jury going to award to another movie star for that? From reading that article, it looked like they we're looking for equitable relief, which was they wanted him to get into rehab. Right. That's, that's what that article looked like, which oh, okay. I, I can't believe that that's, you know, in, but that's in part what they're asking for based on everything I've read, which is they want him to agree to go get real treatment. Maybe she, number one, doesn't want him to hurt other women. I uh, think that's sincere, right? Yeah. And, and number two, she wants him to get help. I think I said in a previous statement, he's as likable on screen as he is despicable off screen. Perfect way to put it. That goes back to even Stevens, man. I remember I was a kid thinking he was funny. And then in Holes, I was shocked that he grew up into a funny person. His delivery, his timing is great. Those Michael Bay movies, they're not great. It's not his fault. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is a shitty movie, but not because of Shia LaBeouf. It's a stupid plot. He played so, that part as well as you could for the part he's given. Correct. And if you had better writing for that part, he would have had. He would have been the next Indiana Jones. Correct. Sure. He would have had. Yeah. He would have had a series of three movies off of that. Right. But it, not his fault. It, it was. It was poor writing. 
Letter? What letter? <laughs> what did Mr. Williams just give you? Me? That looked like a mailman? Like you said, he was great in Eagle Eye. He's got clinical psychosis. He definitely has alcohol and drug dependency issues. People like that are unpleasant to be around. He's difficult to work with, right? That being said, you know, relapse is part of recovery. He's going to have a jigsaw climb back. It's very similar to Robert Downey Jr. Agreed. Movies would not let him in it because they wouldn't give insurance coverage if Downey Jr. was in the movie. He goes to jail. He gets out. He starts taking indie roles like Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. He has friends bankroll the insurance bonds so he could be in these movies, Mel Gibson being one of them. And he he cleans up his act, and then he gets Iron Man. And to be honest, nobody else could have played Tony Stark. Nobody else could have played him. And hopefully there's something like that for Shia LaBeouf out there. And there might be because he's very similar. He he is able to, to pull off these performances. He's very entertaining. He's a blockbuster actor, in my opinion. He's just got issues. Um, this is this is fantastic because I, I I truly think that if he can make it long enough, right? Like if he can survive the drug abuse and all of the you know the stuff, I think once he gets older, he will mellow out a little bit. Hopefully, he'll get into recovery, right? Get the help he needs, and like you said, he can he can have sort of a second career like Downey Jr. did. Shia's recent stuff where it's more indie and it's less big budget pictures or whatever. The stuff is amazing. Peanut butter Falcon is amazing. Right. Movie. Honey boy is fantastic. Pieces of a woman. He, he puts in a great performance. He's great in, in fury. Like right, that scene, just the scene Mike picked from fury. He barely spoken. It. it was just his, it was I, Mike. Exactly. I, I'm guessing you picked it for the look that he gave with his eyes. Precisely. What are you doing? He's able to do that stuff. And not a lot of people are, right? I agree. Bradley Cooper can't. So we need him to get help. Logan, I think it might be helpful, particularly for listeners who have not seen Honey Boy, that I think gave me a very different perspective on Shia that that I didn't have. So tell us a little bit about that movie and, and how autobiographical it is and and how that relates to his situation today. Yeah, as I understand it, he wrote it in while he was in rehab. It explores both his time in rehab. You you sort of flash between his time in rehab in which he's writing a movie and his time growing up as a child actor. And in that time where he's a, a child actor trying to make it in Hollywood, he lives with his dad who you know, he, I think he says this in an interview, like my parents are hippies. We like, I spent a lot of time on communes and my dad, you know, was not, he's not a good role model. He tries to grow weed on the side of the road and, you know, is always up into some sort of schemes. Every time I, if something good happens, he cuts me down an abusive relationship, which is what you can kind of see coming out the other end that he lived through as a child. In addition to, you know, he does become a child star, right? He gets roles, even Stevens, Holes, the, as a, at a young age. He's making more money than his parents, and he's basically paying his dad to take care of him. Right, and there's a lot of resentment and hatred there between the two of them. I have never seen anything in any movie where 
a child star grows up to make a movie about his life and then he plays his own father who was verbally and mentally and physically abusive to him i've never seen anything like that and it was to me it was so insightful as to who this guy is and i agree i agree it it really opens your eyes to like i very much understand his behavior and and why he is the way he is once you watch this movie i never could congratulations good on you honey boy the peanut butter falcon i was blown away when i watched peanut butter falcon for the first time like zero expectations and i was like you mike just blown away by how good he is in it the soundtrack for that movie is fantastic the whole movie is great it's got this wrestling tie-in and they brought back a bunch of the old wrestlers from the old wwf like rowdy rowdy piper and mankind are in there and jake the snake yeah jake the snake it's just i mentioned the tax collector <laughs> it's it's not a good movie and his character is meant to be a cholo in southern california where he was he's connected with a mexican drug gang and they and they go around and collect taxes from the drug dealers and he is sort of the muscle he's got the accent down he's got the look down god doesn't exist i'm supposed to terrorize the herd that's my function that's the knowledge i was born with guy brings it even a bad he, movie it's not his fault it's, never, it's not his fault right he got a full, in real life, a full chest tattoo, his entire front of his chest and his I stomach. I just saw it, yeah. I think a little too dedicated, as much as we love Daniel Day and we talk about the dedication and everything. This is like a, a weird, different level that I'm, I'm not sure is necessary, but... No, he's a psycho. I mean, like, that's the problem. <laughs> Who you call a psycho? That's the problem we have right here. I don't know what the tolerance is going to be for men with this type of behavior. Robert Downey Jr. was able to find redemption and have a comeback. Can this guy in 2021? Robert Downey Jr. was not accused of mentally and physically abusing women. We'll see. I mean, I think Shia's got a steeper hill to climb. Do you, do you think he's done? I mean, Hollywood loves a comeback, so I'm not going to write him off yet, but he's got to grow out of this. I do not think he's done. And at some point, some director is going to want to put him in a movie. He's not done. I just would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when uh, he told Mark Wahlberg, no, I'm not going to not gonna do Transformers 4. Right. <laughs> Did you have different accents? You were like different people. <laughs> Trouble is, you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit, preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Enquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure. To see to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. Orson Welles in a scene from 1941's Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles, written by Herman Mankiewicz and Orson Welles.
The movie was nominated for nine Academy Awards, but only took home one for Best Screenplay. The movie How Green Was My Valley won Best Picture, along with Best Director for John Ford. That was one of a record-breaking four wins for Best Director in John Ford's career. The also-rans for Best Picture that year were Blossoms in the Dust, Here Comes Mr. Jordan, Hold Back the Dawn, The Little Foxes, The Maltese Falcon, One Foot in Heaven, Sergeant York, and Suspicion, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It is Matt's pick for the year. So Matt, the question to you is, is Citizen Kane the best movie ever made? It's not. It's excellent, though. And amen. I'm always shocked when I watch very good old movies, how normal people were. Right. We act like people in 1940s were were like caveman or all like Jimmy Cagney. Right. But they're they're not like Phil Hartman, the caveman lawyer. Correct. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm just a caveman. The premise of Citizen Kane as a media mogul, it's very poignant. Our most recent president used the media to create the news. And there's the scene with Wells and his wife, which is a nice montage when she's eating dinner and she goes, people will think what I tell them to think. There's a real statement about the media in this movie. I was really impressed by the performances by everybody. I really liked the nonlinear fashion that the story was told. The fact that I am able to watch a movie that is 80 years old Mm -hmm. and not be bored, not think that these people are from outer space because it happened so long ago and still find a connection to today. Technology, news, media controls people. It controls votes. Like it was, it's right in your face. Nothing's changed. I'm Charles Foster King. I'm no cheap, crooked politician trying to save himself. From the consequences of his crimes. I was never bored. Part of the reason why I wasn't, though, is because it was paired with Mank. So I kind of brought my A game. Okay. Gotcha. And, you know, I was watching it with a little bit of a studious purpose. I think the story, you know, which speaks to this Mank movie, I thought the story was incredible. I, I really did. It also piqued my interest in something that I haven't had much interest in, which is the the golden age of film. One thing that struck me about, like you're saying, man, about, you know, this movie's 80 years old, but, you know, could be made today and you could be like, oh, yeah, I I draw the connections, right, to with what's going on in, in the real world and stuff. It's clear to me that even 80 years ago, the Academy was very political. No doubt. And they hated Orson Welles. And so they did not give him best picture. They did not give him best actor. Right. Right. And yet this movie has stood the test of time and is well known as one of the best movies. I agree with you, Matt. I don't think it's the best movie of all time. I still think the Godfather specifically part two of the godfather agreed best movie of all time but we'll cover both of them and then we'll end up hating them and then godfather part three (laughs) will end up being our favorite movie of all time just when i thought i was out they pulled me back in i so i watched citizen kane and maltese falcon and i was sitting there after i finished maltese falcon i'm like 
how good must how green was my valley had to have been to beat both of those movies because both of those movies are fantastic movies right right Maltese Falcon you know what I thought about when I watched that I was like oh man Chinatown ripped this off John Houston directed the Maltese Falcon John Houston is Faye Dunaway's dad in Chinatown he's the villain in it Chinatown didn't rip it off Chinatown homaged it there's okay. a big difference Fair. yes Fair I enough. mean Robert Polanski is a good man he wouldn't do that <laughs> <laughs> It just goes to show how, like, the Academy 80 years ago was as political then as it is now, right, with the way they give out awards and they, you know, spread it around. And it's not it's not necessarily the best movie or the best actor. So, Mike, I know you went way down the rabbit hole with Ooh, this. Ooh, did I go? So my parents love old movies, so I grew up with them. My house was full of black and white movies all the time. So when my parents were like, we're going to go see Das Weissbund, a black and white german film i'm like i'm already in the car guys <laughs> <laughs> so there is no bigger fan who is a uh, a xenial or gen x or wherever you want to put me of old movies than me i was really excited to watch how green was my valley it's directed by john ford john ford directed the searchers which is one of the best westerns ever made we're going to review it on this show sooner or later. They just covered it in the Warner Brothers book. John Ford has won Best Director four times. That's a record. That's amazing. So I was really, really pumped to watch How Green Is My Valley. It's probably the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. Really? It's, hor- it's horrible. Worse it's than a- Avatar? Worse than Avatar. I would, ra- I would uh, watch Avatar ten times before I would watch really? this movie again look silent movies ended in about 1928 so here we are in 1942 with the academy awards for a movie that was made in 1941 you know just a little over a decade from the end of silent movies and the beginning of the talkies this movie is narrated in a way that would normally be like the little billboard thing in a silent movie as my father and brothers scrubbed the coal dust from their backs. Most would come off them, but some would stay for life. The acting is terrible. The cinematography is awful. And the fact that it not only won Best Picture and won Best Director is just awful. It's clearly to snub Orson Welles. Exactly. They could have given it to Maltese Falcon, right? Exactly, which they should have if they're going to snub Citizen Kane. Right, The thing about the Academy Awards in 1942 is they stuck it to Citizen Kane. Every single time that a movie was announced as as Citizen Kane being a a part of a category, vocal boos from the crowd erupted. So every single time, and there was nine nominations. Why did they hate him so much? A couple things about that, Matt. First of all, Orson Welles is from Kenosha, Wisconsin. I know. Might as well be Chicago, right? Might as well. But he does not speak as if he were from there. Not financially speaking, in terms of authority and rights. Financially, it wasn't extraordinary in any way at all. (laughs) Right? I was surprised when I read he was from Kenosha. I was. Of course. For that exact reason. And the guy's a radio guy. So he comes from Kenosha, Wisconsin, not even with a, like a, like an endearing, charming Kenosha accent, right? Right. Just like he's described in in the movie Mank as a self-proclaimed hyphenate, the boy genius. He's the guy that did the War of the Worlds 
and he sopped up that fame and publicity and controversy like it was gravy and he was the biscuit because he got a lot of attention through this publicity stunt that he pulled with War of the Worlds. The guy at 26 years old was able to take this contract from a major studio in Hollywood to do whatever he wanted, to have total carte blanche and to do things with this movie that had never been done before. And really it's, it's not just because it's Orson Welles. It's because he had no supervision. He grabbed the best cinematographer at the time, which is a guy named Greg Toland, who's responsible for every low shot, differently lighted shot, full focus shot, where you can see people in the background and the foreground at the same time. He said he just let that guy do do whatever he wanted to, right? Precisely. And then he moved the lights around, right? Because he did lighting at some point. So he just he's like, I just moved the lights around, you know, just try some different stuff because I could. Exactly. And, and they and, said after I left, they would just move it back because I, I didn't know. Because he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> and apparently the story goes that Greg Tolan walked up to, to uh, Orson Welles and said, I want to work in your picture. My name is Toland. I said, why do you, Mr. Toland? He said, because you've never made a picture. And so I want to work with you because you're going to essentially think outside the box instead of doing at the time, which was really a paint by numbers approach to making movies back in the 30s and 40s and and tolan really was a visionary nobody had ever cut holes in the floor of a hollywood studio to look up at the actors but of course when you think about it orson wells is a radio and theater actor so his focus is on the voice and the sound and the intonations of the actors when you go to a play and you're sitting in the first second third row what are you looking at you're looking up at the stage you see the actors from feet up, right? They're larger than life characters, literally. Right. Of course, that's the way he's going to want to put the camera when he goes to Hollywood to make his very first movie at the age of 26. Honestly, I think he had less say than that. I think maybe right. at that time, because they were cranking out so much by paint by numbers. Again, think about the quality that we have today, but think about the crap that goes out. You really can't have the quality without the garbage, right? Because once the content is out there streaming, it gives these auteurs the ability to do whatever they want to an experiment. But back in the day, and this is what I'm getting from this Warner Brothers book, it first started with the projector. And then they realized that this machine transports people without friction, meaning you don't have to walk. You don't have to get on a train. There's no, it's, it's transportation without friction. So we can do this and people are going to line up for it. Problem is, is there's no content. We got to start cranking this shit out. So that's what these studios were doing. So that's why it was paint by numbers because they were rushing to get the content out. By the time Orson Welles was there, he was on the backs of these other studios that were putting the shit out so that they can they can do the quality. You can't have one without the other. Uh, we cannot condense the controversy that was Citizen Kane into this podcast. I mean, they have made RKO 281 about the controversy, which was an HBO movie with Liev Schreiber and John Malkovich. They've made a whole American Experience documentary on PBS that goes through the controversy that was Citizen Kane. The only way to succinctly describe it is this. The movie was unable to get a fair viewing at the time that it came out because William Randolph Hearst pushed so hard 
against this movie and was actually able to make all of the other studio heads from Warner and MGM, et cetera, try to pay RKO, which is the studio then to buy this movie for the purpose of killing it. And, and they were unsuccessful because by 1942, William Randolph Hearst is not the same guy he used to be. No doubt. Hearst was going bankrupt. Newspapers are going down. He was on the decline. And so people saw blood in the water, right? The reality what's he is, gonna is, do? what's he going to do? He, he owns print and we own the pictures and the pictures tell the stories. Another no similar comparison to what's going on right now. No doubt. Ex-president and, and the banks and, you know, all, all these, you know, tech companies and stuff and putting politics aside, whether you think it's appropriate or not there's a little blood in the water and they're, you know, they're backing up. It's like, what's he going to do? He's not the president anymore. Right. And so he doesn't have a Twitter account. (laughs) They're emboldened for sure. Right. Like Matt said, I was not bored generally. I mean, there there was a couple parts where I I felt it got a little long, but there's some iconic scenes that I was waiting for. Like when he's standing at the podium behind and behind him has the big, you know, cane poster. I made no campaign promises because until a few weeks ago, I had no hope of being elected. I mean, that's just an iconic scene in the way, the way they shot it, the way they, you know, the lighting and everything. I was entertained the entire time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It holds up. The story is amazing, right? The acting, excellent. I can see why somebody would say, yeah, this is the best movie ever made for a whole host of reasons we've sort of criticized movies for not being in a linear fashion, like the good shepherd probably would have been better movie if, if it was just linear, but they cut it up Uh, the way he wrote the script and, and the, you know, the order in which the movie goes together, I, I think is, is generally brilliant for that time period. And it works really well. And maybe that's a combination of both the writing and Orson having the vision to put it together that way. I want to point something out about the story going into this. I obviously knew Rosebud was the slat and knowing that, and then seeing that scene where he's a boy and it's very, very brief scene. And I was surprised by how short it was of him sledding down it and seeing how happy that kid was. It was right before he sent off to leave. That was emotional. Knowing that, like, I I knew it was the sled. So when I saw that moment right there, I was like, okay, I I get it. But I thought there was actually going to be a little bit more about it. I did not know about the Rosebud connection and whatever. And at the time, like you said, Mike, didn't really know or appreciate what was going on. And then at the end, you're like, oh, okay, that's a nice tie-in or whatever. But the story, like you said, 80 years later still resonates, which is the news media has power to sort of control things. And and I I think that's the bigger story takeaway um, than sort of this like twist ending, you know, for, uh, or like theme or connection that runs through about, you know, when this, when this person was the happiest in their life and things like that. It's more to me, the, the part that still holds true is the, is the news media and the power and, you know, yeah. I, so your, your take on it is your, is, your statement about like, they'll believe what I tell them to. Right. That's couldn't be more true with the news media. 
they don't just report news they tell you what to believe so you um, your take on the sled is essentially like it's not a big deal everybody thinks about their happiest moment when they're about to die so what's he's no different than anybody else right <laughs> it was just yeah. a short thing it's an aside if anything it's almost inconsequential for who he was as a person they talk about it in the movie and they talk about it when you look up William Hurst, you know, they credit him with starting, starting a war from his, in, his incendiary, you know, sure. headlines, you know, so you, you provide the pros, I'll provide the war. Right. So I think the story, the takeaways from the story are those 80 years later that there's so many connections to present day, as opposed to, this underlying sort of secret theme about oh, what does rosebud mean and like the sled and you know the like you said it's a very short scene when you first see it happen and it it's not linear so you're kind of bouncing around and you get bounced into that and then it later comes back and i think that the reason why citizen kane has endured over the years is because you you have the twin achievements of both filmmaking as you have an excellent script a very auteur avant-garde directing and cinematography right after the news on the march scene where they're in that that little like viewing studio and it's like lots of silhouettes and lines you know dark faces and shadows over the eyes yeah that was good that was good a lot, was a lot of those actors were the same actors within the story. I thought that was good too. So there's never been anything like that before then at that time. And and so whether it's Greg Toland as the cinematographer or Orson Welles as the producer and director, co-writer, or anybody else that's involved in this movie, Joseph Cotton is actually a great actor that went on to do great things. It, it doesn't matter who is responsible for this, the, the genius that has come out in Citizen Kane. There is cinematic excellence in the way that this movie was done. The other side is a way of doing something as simple as playing with a sled as becoming the, the plot point for the whole movie. There is the use of flashbacks, these cinematic storytelling devices that are still used today. To Sometimes not very well, but yes. Right. And <laughs> not only to use them, sort of in their inaugural run, but to use them with, with perfection. But what did he do after Citizen Kane? The, the Magnificent Ambersons, we will cover that on this podcast. On our it, 40th it, anniversary. When we're picking Jesse Plemons as our actor. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Who wrote Citizen Kane? Mank Mank. This is the first Matt segue. Oh, you want to get the to show? the, you want to get to the main event, huh? The Mank event. The Mank event. Monkowitz. Let's move it along, monkey wits. <laughs> we have a contract that you understood and agreed to. If you fight this, it will go to what your new guild calls arbitration, and you, my friend, will lose. Script, money, and assuming such a thing still exists in Hollywood, the respect of those who honor their word. How can I put this nicely? I may be a loose cannon, but you, my friend, are an outsider. They're exasperated by me, and I've earned it, but you, a self-anointed savior hyphenate, they're just waiting to loathe you. Remind me never again to work with a washed-up alcoholic.
Gary Oldman and Tom Burke in a scene from 2020's Mank, directed by David Fincher, based on a screenplay by his late father, Jack Fincher. The movie also stars Amanda Seyfried, Lily Collins, Arliss Howard, and Charles Dance. This movie tells the story of Herman Mankiewicz, played by Gary Oldman, and how he, allegedly, wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane in 1940. The movie also shows through flashbacks Mank as a screenwriter for MGM in the 1930s and his rise and fall within the inner circle of William Randolph Hearst, played by Charles Dance. The movie ends with Mank telling Orson Welles, played by Tom Burke, that he wants credit for the screenplay, which he eventually gets, and the two both win an Academy Award for Best Screenplay. Is this Fincher's best movie? Logan, what do you think? I don't think it's Fincher's best movie. It's a very good movie, and it's especially enjoyable, like you said, Matt, paired with Citizen Kane. I don't believe this movie can be enjoyable if it's not paired with Citizen Kane. I think that's where it's going to get knocked. Cinematically, it's a marvel, just like everything he does. Mike, you know what David Fincher's best movie is. Hands down, it's Zodiac. This movie is so dense. It's a textbook that led me down a path. I had to invest in watching Citizen Kane beforehand. And then I further invested time with researching early Hollywood, the RKO documentary, and now reading this snooze fest about the Warner Brothers. But at least I learned about the searchers, Mike. Um, (laughs) How many stars would you give Mank, Matt? Almost four. Right. I give it three and a half. Right? Wow. It's almost four. It's so technical, Mike. It has to be dinged for that. It's not rewatchable at all. Okay. I totally disagree because I watched it twice. It's not rewatchable at all for people that don't have a podcast about movies as a hobby every other Friday night. Okay. (laughs) All right. Again, I thoroughly enjoyed this project more than anything I've done in this, in this whole series, but it's less than four stars. I generally agree with you. So I will say some good things about it. The scene when they're at the movie studio and they all go in, they're just like taking turns telling the story of this movie. Just so entertaining and like how I visualize old Hollywood, which is all these guys like walk into a room and there's like cigars and drinks and they're all like, ha, ha, ha. Like, we're gonna, <laughs> this is what we're going to do next, right? And so then they, they leave the rookie with holding the bag. Yeah. Overturn their creaky wagon and set fire to it. Tell him about the finale, Charlie. And so. they still signed it. They knew. They knew back then that... They were pumping out so much shit that they could just make it up as they go along. (laughs) Some of that kind of stuff I thought was just, was just fantastic about the movie. Oldman is very good in the role. He outdoes himself a little bit. This guy died at 55, 53 years old. So this is, this is about 15 years before the guy died. And Gary Oldman is in his mid sixties. Not bad. I think he was a little bit too much of a sweetheart, to be honest. I think that from what you read and what the descriptions of people are about his character, he's supposed to be a little bit more like Shia LaBeouf, despicable. The stuff that I looked into is that the the Mankiewicz family is a darling of Hollywood. So the reason why Citizen Kane won Best Screenplay was not for Orson Welles. It won because of Mank. Yeah. 
and he says, and he will tell you in this movie that Orson Welles didn't have anything to do with the writing. <laughs> the Mankiewicz family is a Hollywood darling. The brothers, the sons, the grandsons, they all went on to have careers in Hollywood. They loved Mank at the time because even though he was a fall down drunk, he was still charming and funny and witty. And he witty. was always willing. The, the guy helped on the Wizard of Oz and his name is not on that picture. Do you guys honestly think that at the time people were like, this is the best thing you've ever, ever written? No, no. This is just Hollywood sort of playing it up because I find it somewhat hard to believe that at the time right. people were like, oh my God, this is the best thing you've ever written. Logan, you're making a great point. Do you remember when Houseman told him at the beginning of the movie where he's like, all I am saying is no one can write like that. But I can write like that, Houseman. I have. The narrative is one big circle like a cinnamon roll. Right. And he's going through the explanation. Houseman's saying, like, look, what you've done is, like, not only risky, it's, like, it's kind of crap where you're going with this. I find that as, as a knock against the movie in the sense that they're, like, buttering it up. 100%, Logan. I'm on record right now saying that this is sub four. It could, with time, resonate with me to get over the mark of four. This story is dense. And I don't know if I loved it because of how much there is to it or whether I discount it because of that. So for instance, this thing starts as kind of like a heart of darkness journey with Mank meeting all of these people in person and having the flashback with them, which would logically follow with ending with Hearst after Marion Davies, right? Because everyone's saying you can't release this about Hearst. So you think Hearst is going to be the last guy. Instead, the showdown is with Orson Welles, mm -hmm. which you didn't really see coming. When it wasn't Hearst, I was somewhat disappointed. It then changed this plot from a showdown with Hearst to a dispute over who wrote it, which was really an aside or an epilogue, right? Because the movie did not seem to be about this conflict. We, we have to put this in context again at the times of the notion of writing is just over a decade old. Before that, people were just doing narration for, for movies on, uh, on screen, right? Right. There's never been such a thing as a screenwriter, which is why at the clip we put at the top, Orson Welles is making a note of arbitration and screenwriters guild and your new thing there. He's making a point out of that. We have a contract. This is a totally new realm of a profession and of how the law is going to treat this thing. If you look at Mank's career, the guy was hired to do for Citizen Kane what he had done for every other movie in Hollywood, which is really be the script doctor. He's the guy that you hire to make your movies better. I also discounted a little bit for having a little autobiographical element to it. I think Fincher might fancy himself a little Orson. I was going to ask you about that, Matt, because this is a little Shia LaBeouf with the fact that Jack Fincher, his dad, who is deceased, wrote this screenplay and he tried to get it made in the in the aughts with Kevin Spacey and Jodie Foster. Kevin Spacey would have been great in this role. Gary Oldman was a cool 20 years older. How many stars, Mike? It's a five-star movie. It's Fincher's best movie. 
This is the most beautifully shot black and white movie ever made. The cigarette burns. That was cute. Right? No doubt. That was cute. Fincher made cinematic history with this movie. No one's ever done anything like this before where they've shot movies in 8K in the daytime and then converted them to black and white and then made it a nighttime shot. Like when Oldman and Seifert are walking through the zoo. You need a degree in larceny. Is it bribery or crime? That's what Sinclair said. The little sausage might have gone to jail. Technical versus the visual. Avatar is technically amazing. The master is visually amazing. Two different things. When I'm talking about the visual nature of Mank, no one has ever shot a movie in 8K and added cigarette burns and altered the lens in such a way that a black and white movie is this visually stimulating. This is David Fincher being Orson Welles. He's been given total artistic license And he made exactly the movie he wanted to. And he's been struggling against that his whole career. Alien 3, his first movie, they were like, yeah, no, you're you're not going to do that. He's like, no, but the alien's going to come out of a dog. They're like, no, it's going to come out of a cow. He's like, what the fuck is going on with you? (laughs) This is unfiltered Fincher. And I think he's at his best because he's working from the material that he knows best, which is its lineage. It's his ancestral stuff, not only professionally, but personally. This is I his can, dad I can buy play. into that last statement. Okay. That, that's but, why I'm, I'm coming down on this, because this is so close to Fincher, and I think that's when he's at his best. And I just can't see him in any other of his works coming this close to this uh, mastery of his craft. I think, Mike, you're at least partially swayed by your love of black and white films, because... This movie, while, you know, very visually appealing, is nowhere close to what the master gives you, right? It's a like, novelty, Mike. It is. It's a novelty like Avatar. That's, you know, that's what you're talking about. The colors in the master, like we talked about, it's it's like, it's a different experience to me anyway. But I'm like, I'm accepting the fact that black and white medium and the right. way that Fincher has done this is a novelty and it's, and it's different. It's never been done before. I don't want to watch movies in black and white. We have color, right? <laughs> we, we've progressed past that. And so, you know, something like the master that has the color that we talked about and the, you know, the visual appeal. And it, there's a lot of movies with big sweeping shots that have vivid color that give you a feeling that nothing else can it puts you in this place right when you see a sunset that then you take i don't know if you guys have ever done this but you see a sunset and you're like wow look at that and you take a picture on your phone and it's nothing like what you've seen the way they're able to capture those moments in film always impresses me especially in color because it's so vivid that's my knock is you know great black and white understood very cool it's just, you know, we make films in color no, now. This that's movie really... couldn't be made in color, though. Uh, it no, it could not. I think Logan, one thing that he, that he left out is, is that, like, we stipulate that it is visually compelling in its black and white delivery with the cigarette burns, with the special lens to replicate it, 100% mastered. Do you guys remember when you were watching Citizen Kane and the whole thing sounded like it was being shot on the soundstage at a like a theater on, and there was okay. an echo to everything? I do. Did you notice that they did the same thing in Mank? Yes. 
so what I would compare and contrast this with, did you guys remember the movie, The Good German, which was yes. a George Clooney little thought right. experiment? Yeah. It's like, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to be really attractive and I'm going to make movies out of the same equipment that they made in the 1940s. And everyone's like, you're attractive. <laughs> if you had to sum this up in like a short synopsis, what would you say about the good German? Black and white film where everyone dies in the end. That's a great idea because you're so attractive. Right. It, it, it was, it was, it's horrible. It did not work out at all. But like when Trent Reznor and the, the, his buddy get together to make the soundtrack for Mank, they're like, well, we're only going to use the instruments that were available in 1940s. And you can tell that there is an authentic soundtrack. You know what, Mank, man? Right? I am shocked that I know Trent Reznor does Fincher soundtracks and I didn't even think of it once. <laughs> he nailed it big time. And it's so subtle, and I appreciate that, the way they did it. The fact that I barely noticed any score to Mank is, means that he hit it, right? If you hit it out of the park, the music is very noticeable, and, and you remember it when the, in the parts that you want the listener or the watcher to remember it, and then you forget it when you don't want them to. I'm sorry, I, I know it's silly, but... But what? Why not? Promise you won't laugh. I promise I won't laugh. My exit. What? I already made my exit. I think Fincher feels slighted by the Academy and the epilogue of this movie, which I don't believe was necessary at all, which has Orson Welles state in a interview from Rio de Janeiro that he didn't get an Academy Award because it's just kind of funny the way like that's the magic of Hollywood. I believe that's autobiographical. I believe right Fincher's dad was a writer that was also slighted. I believe that was auto autobiographical as well. The flaw of Mank is the epilogue because the whole movie we have dialed it back just a little bit as to whether we're taking sides on Mank versus Orson. In this entire movie, it's not about it at all, right? Exactly. Okay. That is not right. the movie. Good. That is just setting the time and the season and the environment for which we're, we're going to understand the flashback. Right. Which, which I think is great because you can't do a movie about Citizen Kane without doing some flashbacks because sure. that's the whole movie. Which I thought was fun. The weird thing about the epilogue was like it was like this close up black and white, like slow image of Gary Oldman coming into focus. And I was like, didn't I see this in JFK? Yeah, it was like, is that Lee Harvey Oswald? I was just about to say, is that Lee Harvey Oswald? I really don't know what the situation is about. Nobody has told me anything. I was off put when the showdown was with Orson Welles instead of Hearst. But I was more distracted by that bit at the end about who wrote it yes like the upton sinclair labor the dis well, you don't like bill nye the science guy the disparate you know distribution of wealth those are all themes in this movie he did a good job as keeping it a theme and not the center point of it but this showdown when he but he the really organ is, grinder's monkey is really the is the organ grinder's monkey Oldman is going to be lauded for that drunken rant, 
but really it's the escort on the way out. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? And at that time that I watched that scene, I realized like, you got to remember, man, the whole time I'm thinking like this guy's evil. You got to remember, like, he's also Citizen Kane too, right? So he's a sophisticated man. It ending there with flashbacks and going to Orson Welles. That's a perfect movie. That's a perfect script. I think you, I think you cut the epilogue off of Mank and you have a perfect movie. What do you think, Logan? I still don't think it gets there unless you have it with Citizen Kane. So because of that, I think about 10% of the population is going to watch this movie and go pretty tight. 90% are going to go, I never saw Citizen Kane. I don't get it. 95% of the people are never going to watch this movie. <laughs> Which makes it a shoe into to win the best picture. This time... <laughs> You are a legend. I'm an accomplice. You are a manic depressive. I am Shiva, the god of death. I'm Michael Clayton. You're late. This is a $3 billion class action lawsuit. The architect of our defense has been arrested for running naked through a parking lot. I'm not the enemy. And who are you? I'm not the guy that you kill. I'm the guy that you buy. Are you so blind you don't even see what I am? Do I look like I'm negotiating? The movie Michael Clayton has been selected by Matt. Oh, man. I mean, it's it's great. It's just we, we talk about it all the time. I really love it. I, I think Clooney's performance is good. I think Sidney Pollack is amazing in it. It captures some of the janitorial role that we really have, and I appreciate that. When you rip the glamour away from the Tom Cruise, A Few Good Men, A Time to Kill, you just rip the bullshit away and you just talk about we are janitors, and it's, it's not far from the truth. So for the actor next week, Halle Berry. Oh, lady. Actor. Halle Berry. She is the last African-American woman to win Best Actress. 2001 Monsters Ball. Logan, what's our year, man? 2017 with Moonlight. This just in, Logan did not pick Moonlight. He picked La La Land. La La, La Land is his pick. La La Land is his pick. Okay. That's, that's, a, that's an old Oscar joke. <laughs> That's it for this week's in-camera review podcast. Mike, Matt, and Logan, we are lawyers talking about movies. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Good night, everyone. Mm-hmm.